Unsupervised Leadership. This is season three, episode four. And we took our listeners' advice today, didn't we, Courtney? Which one? The one that people said (laughs) they like to hear from people, A, sometimes not in education, Mm. and B, someone to come on to talk to all of us about mental health. Yes. Mental health is a real topic right now in general, but certainly for educators. And so we've got somebody really great today. We actually have a clinical psychologist that also has worked in the field of education, but has her own private practice. And we we ask her a whole lot of stuff, don't we? We do. She's really good. She's great. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure you all get questions from parents, people in your school districts, your kids. You know, what are we doing to help our young generations grapple with their emotions and how to have self-regulation? There's a lot of different pieces of that. And she had a favorite drink, which we will let her share, but people are probably wondering, what are we drinking today? We're drinking Prosecco. (laughs) You're right, because we're still on our weight loss journey. And the latest advice that I was given was you really should only be drinking one of two drinks. Mm-hmm. And the first was vodka water, which as you know, I think is ridiculous. I, I do know that we've had a listener or a podcast um, interviewee that loves that. I don't see the point. If I'm going to drink that, it's going to taste like water. Why not just drink water? Okay. So that's the first one. Yeah. And the second is Prosecco, which I'm never going to turn down. Prosecco is really good. I do agree. I I like F and cucumber vodka with water because it tastes like flavored water. Okay. I could do that. I got a lot of Christmas gifts that were related to Prosecco. (laughs) Right. It was really nice. It was nice, but we, here we are and we're back and I'm excited for our listeners to hear from a psychologist. So am I, because I think it's, I hate to use the term a hot topic, but it is. It's a prevalent issue in education right now about what do we do about mental health, especially post-COVID, and what does that look like? And is the answer, you know, an SEL curriculum? Are there other things we can do? Is that just the tip of the iceberg? Does it work? Um, I don't know about you, but I get questions about that a lot. Yeah, and not only that, what are we doing for our educators mm-hmm. when it comes to their own mental health and well-being? Because the job is really, really challenging. I think the job has always been challenging, regardless of what position that you hold in the system. But post-COVID, I think people thought, oh, we're just going to jump right back in. Well, we're really not seeing that at all. I mean, I think that there's some lasting effects here and also maybe opportunities for us moving forward that we can do more in the area of mental health and wellness. I mean, think about all of the recent teacher institutes and maybe it was just designed for a day of wellness. I've heard that from several school districts. Yeah. I just think in general, we need to take better care of anybody in the education system. Mm -hmm. That's parents, it's kids, it's educators. We always put a huge emphasis on test scores. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Nobody goes into education to raise test scores. No one. (laughs) And the best compliment I think uh, my team got was right after Christmas break, a parent came in and said, I'm so glad, you know, that I moved here, but I was a little reluctant because I always had this thought that the school district was all about test scores. 
mm-hmm. and didn't really put a lot of emphasis on social emotional concerns. Mm. And after meeting with the team and talking with everybody, you know, both parents were visibly upset, but they were like, thanks for giving us the time to talk about this. And that made my ear. Well, that's a great compliment to you, your team and that leadership. And I do think that a lot of parents have thoughts about what a system is, Mm -hmm. or there's a lot of generalizations made, not only from parents, but just educators. And um, if you even think back to last week's episode with PJ Capozzi, when we asked him about what is the biggest misconception about you, there are tons of misconceptions that we are imposing on people, educators, kids, systems. I mean, it's happening all the time. It is. And we talked today to our psychologist on, you will hear soon, but talking about females and leadership specifically, what are some things that females grapple with, struggle with more than males do um, in her professional opinion? And she said, the inability to let things go. (laughs) Let's talk about holding a grudge. Yeah. So she talks about how a lot of men might be upset about something, but then they can abandon it and they let it go and move on. And that women don't do that and will harbor resentment, will carry that grudge for years and years and years. Is that you, Kate? Do you do that? I I do hold grudges and I try really hard not to, but I do. And I think I need to talk to somebody about that. We have a great therapist coming on. You should yeah, call her. I We should call her. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. I think that that's honest. I do think that women hold grudges. I know I have. I mean, mm-hmm. if somebody does something to you, like when I think back about even being a, a principal or an assistant principal and, and just even one interaction that you walk away in tears, which I have mm-hmm. as an administrator, it's hard to move on from that if it's because somebody said or did something to you and it's hard to forget it. We see a lot of, you know, we are always on our bandwagon about teachers should call parents and teachers should call parents. But a lot of times the reason that teachers don't, it's not because of the specific parent. It's because there was a specific parent that laid into them and Mm -hmm. lit them up. And then they're like, I have PTSD and I never want to um, call a parent again because they're harboring what that feeling was, and they never want it to be like that again. So sometimes I think that that's also an issue, but, um, yeah, I, I've held grudges. Yeah. Are you holding any grudges right now? No, not yet. It's like right into the school year. I mean, not the school year, you know, 2023. It's right into 2023. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not holding any grudges. Okay. I, I am holding a grudge in terms of the systematic approach that I think we need to do better getting educators therapy and there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with therapy. But I think that we could do more, you know, offering, and this is just me. So if any Senator or Illinois representative is listening to this right now, if you can find a way (laughs) how we have teledoc, I know there's teletherapy. We need to be able to offer that to educators all the time, whether they take it or not is one thing, but I think giving them the opportunity or showing them that this is something that our insurance, you know, covers or utilizes goes a long way. We at the Superintendents Association are really invested in that and do have opportunities for superintendents to receive free therapy, free counseling along with their family members as well. And that's something that our executive director and the board of directors really was intent on. But here's one of the things I think 
is the challenge is that a lot of times people don't pick up the phone and call. A lot of mm-hmm. times people aren't going to hit that link, even if it's confidential, even if nobody knows. And the reason is there's um, pride issues. Some people see that as a sign of weakness. And so we've had a lot of conversations and just keep talking to educator after educator that I believe every educator needs therapy. I I don't think I would have said that three years ago, but I would say that now, regardless of what you do in a system, I think every person honestly needs therapy. But if you think about it, if you're feeling like I'm embarrassed or this is a sign of weakness, you're less likely to do it. And I think that we have people who are really struggling and they don't even know it. They don't know it until they're absolutely in a crisis And, um, I think there's just still a lot of work to do in this particular area, but I'm glad we're talking about it. I think people are talking about it more. And I think Mm -hmm. that she alludes to that today. Yeah. Do you think that's generational? Like the, the concept of being reluctant to therapy? Mm -hmm. I do too. Mm -hmm. I do. Because when I think of maybe my parents, grandparents, when I think of them, I don't know that therapy was something that people talked about, thought about. I think of my age group, which is not yours. So I know that that's what you're thinking right now. I think it's becoming more acceptable. I don't even know if that's the right word, but I think more people are engaging in it. And when I think about people your age, I think it's more of a norm, which is what you talked to Marty and the um, clinical psychologist about today. Yeah. I just, I think that before not necessarily for me, but like, I think generations before me, if you said you were going to see a therapist, someone thought something was wrong with you, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, we're going to that negative deal. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where now I know tons of people that are in marriage counseling, not because anything's wrong, just because they're like, Oh, I need to save the space an hour a week to talk to somebody about this. Cause I want my marriage to last for a long time. Or, you know, a lot of the podcasts and other things out there promote therapy. People mm-hmm. openly talk about things their therapists say. Yeah. Which is great. It is. And so the hope would be that we continue that path and that it's not because there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. It's because we're being proactive and not reactive. Yeah. Hey, amen. That was, that was a tweet. That was like tweetable. It just came right out Quote for the book. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to quote that in the book. One of the other things that Marty, our psychologist talks about today is she is very, very passionate about parent educators. And she has a lot of experience with preschool for all birth to three programs and early intervention. And with that, I think that one of the struggles that she has seen throughout her practice, and one of the things that she was really passionate and wanted to talk about was parent educators and the investment of parents with kids who are having challenges that they have resources and opportunities to reach out. And I just talked about myself going through that as a mom. And I do think that there are a lot of times that educators who are listening, if there's a situation with your own child, that's really hard um, because you feel like you're an expert in education, but being a mom is very, very different. And I know that I very much struggled with that. And I tell a little bit of a story to her about some of my own experiences and how maybe my ego gets in the way, you know, here I am, I've got my doctorate, I'm a building principal. And I got all these people telling me about my kid and, and asking me these questions and I should show up to the table being an expert. And I quickly realized I had no idea what, 
<laughs> no idea what I was talking about, no idea what I was doing. And that was, that hit my ego very, yeah. very much so. But when I got rid of that and actually let those people help, those people have been a tremendous support dating back to 18 when my son was 18 months old and now he's a teenager. And I think he's successful because of those people and because I allowed that help, but I had to get out of my own way. And I think a lot of parents feel like, oh, not, you know, I mean, I'll have people also say to me, well, I've got a sister that also has, you know, my niece or my nephew and, and my sister doesn't see it or her husband doesn't see it, but I do see it. And how can I get them help? Mm -hmm. I think having honest, direct conversations about it is certainly the place to start, or at least reaching out to somebody else and letting that other person intervene in it. But I think it's a real challenge for parents. You have to see that as a principle. Oh yeah. I think that there's still a stigma about therapy and help and accepting help, especially in that's the word. That was the word I was looking for. Stigma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I swear. I, and I don't know what I think I, I shouldn't say, I don't know what it is. I should say, I should phrase this better mm-hmm. that I've been exposed to it on multiple levels. So I think that I recognize it as a stigma, but I think that for people that have not had open conversations about therapy, or maybe they have their first child and their first child is struggling with something. Mm-hmm. They're probably like, why is this happening? Does this happen to everybody? I don't want to tell people this is happening. To you me. think it's a reflection yeah, of yourself. You, Yeah. And that it's negative. Right. And that you're being judged mm-hmm. and that if there's some type of label associated with your child, that they will be treated differently, not in a good way. Right. I, I think that that's the fear for a lot of parents. And I don't find so many parents wanting to over-accommodate in our school systems. I, I have found at the table that sometimes educators want to over-accommodate and that as a parent, no, I don't need a one-on-one aid. No, why don't we relinquish you know, that service? But that comes with time that comes with, you know, relationships. And I think a hard part for a parent too, is when the team changes annually Mm. and there's different people on the team, you have to relearn. It's no different than what we've talked about with kids coming in and you relearn everything with a new teacher. Then if you have an entirely new team, a new speech path, a new psychologist, a new OT, a new PT, then everybody's relearning Yep. You, them, all of it. And it puts a great stress on parents. And so parents come to the table on guard a lot of times. Yeah. You know what else I found as a building principal, at least, is anytime I've had a student that's had any type of behavioral need, right? Mm-hmm. They are exhibiting some sort of big emotion. Anytime I would call a parent, and this came with time, is I started to talk to parents and say, I'm not calling to tell you about the behavior because I want you to change it. I'm just calling to tell you what happened and then talk about some ideas that we can brainstorm together mm-hmm. to make this better. Cause I think, and I don't have a child, but it breaks my heart when I start to call a parent and they know that I'm calling because their kid is struggling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they hold their breath because they're probably about ready to say, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah. I don't know. And it's not their ownership or responsibility in that mm-hmm. sense. And there's something so freeing about being able to have a conversation with a parent once they know I'm not calling to tell. I'm not calling because I want you to change it. I'm not calling because I I think you have a magic answer that I haven't found yet because I think that that gives the wrong impression. Yeah. And I've had a lot of parents say the worst feeling is sitting at annual reviews or IEP meetings or three or re-evals and hearing all the things that your kid can't do. Can't do. Mm-hmm. It's the worst. And yeah. because parents are like, 
guess what? I already know. I that. know. So there's an yeah. approach to take when it comes to this. There, there should, it's all, it's always in the approach. And what you're talking about is diffusing the situation and making sure that the parent knows that you're on that team. But I can't tell you how many parents will call me and say, Hey, this happened or Hey, that mm-hmm. happened. And I'm, I'm upset about it. And it's always the approach. It's not that they're upset about the behavior or right. any of the situation. It's about the approach. Mm-hmm. We can be better about that. Yeah. But I think that's hard for teachers too, because sometimes teachers get nervous to have those conversations with parents because parents can be really sensitive. Parents mm-hmm. can be hard. Parents can be on guard. But if you think about it, it goes back to, if you just call me and say, Hey, is there anything you want me to know about your kid before we begin this school year? Well, we'll find out. yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. way different than calling me in October and saying, now I'm going to call every single day when your child does X, Y, Z, and it's not for something good. Yeah. And I hate, I hate, and I say this to every person I interview and every person I hire, if you are going to write an email to a parent that's four paragraphs about mm. a negative behavior that oh. their kid had, mm. that's it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not do it because <laughs> do it. I can't, I, it's something I have zero patience for because oh, when a zero. kid has a behavior like that, there's it's for a reason. And that needs to be communicated in person or on the phone, because you need to be able to hear that parent, what they're saying, what's going on. If there's something happening at home, I can't, I, that's a pet peeve of mine. As we know, we've talked about it on season one, season two, two, and now on season three. So we're on our tangents again, but approach matters and parents, we know parents have a, a hard time, but I can tell you it is not easy to be a parent and an educator at the same time sitting at that table. Those are two very, very different experiences. And even if you are a high quality educator and we have parents out there listening and you've had to sit there as a parent, it's way different. Oh yeah. It's so different. It's and, it's sensitive. It's emotional. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a curse and a blessing to that, right? Yep. Because the blessing is, you know, like the terminology and where things could be headed, but that could also be a curse because you're thinking like, is this predetermined? Am I ever going to be able to change this? Mm-hmm. What does this team look like? But then when we talk about educators and I might sound harsh when I say like, they must call, they must, you know, do those things. But I also have a strong feeling towards educators and and protecting them in a sense and making sure that they feel hurt because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that end up becoming teachers that have trauma from childhood or recently or traumatic events that have happened. And they don't even realize how it impacts their daily life and how they interact with students. And so I think that's something we don't talk about enough in education either. Do you do anything when it comes to that? I did something a couple of years ago. I had, um, and this is volunteer only. I did not make people do this. I should preface it with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I <laughs> spoken like an administrator. I, yeah. Right. Yeah. Before I get into this, but <laughs> I had, I asked my staff if they were okay completing the ACEs test or survey on themselves. Oh, and they had to be completely honest. And this survey talks about like, have you ever lost a parent? Mm-hmm. Have your parents divorced? Are they still together? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have to grow up too early? Did you, do you feel upset when someone yells? Um, does it bother you the most if you feel ignored? And so basically the survey gives you a uh, total at the bottom mm-hmm. and they could turn it into me if they were okay. Oh, and so, so they got the results and then they could choose whether or not they gave yes, the results to you to me or not. How many people did it? Like what percentage of staff actually engaged in that? I'm curious. 98%. What? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, because I, I say like 40. No, 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 no. I okay. only had two teachers out of the whole thing that did not participate. Wow. And I prefaced it with as much as I want to know about you. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I sometimes overly talk with my staff because I like to know everything about them, like who they go home to, what their biggest struggle is, who I can call when they do something great. Because to me, like not in a weird way, but my staff is like, my students. If Mm -hmm. I don't know them, they're not going to perform. They're not going to feel like they want to be there. Mm -hmm. But I said, I need, I would like to know this information because I have students coming up, you know, in the next year that have some serious needs. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to put a student in your classroom that I think will trigger you. Okay. And so they were like, oh, that's interesting. So I gave an example of like, Johnny can't sit in his seat and he does not listen um, to like the lesson. He likes to stand. He plays with his fidget. Um, it's not like he's going to run out of the room and he's not going to be disrespectful, Mm -hmm. but he just might not listen. Mm -hmm. And so then I go back to the ACES survey that the staff had done. And I look to see if people have a serious issue with being ignored based on childhood trauma. Mm. And so some teachers I have found, and it's, they don't even know or realize that that's why that bothers them because it's outside of their control. Mm. And it's not like they would much rather have a kid you know, curse at them and leave the room because they feel like I'm still in control of the room in front of me, but I'm not in control of that kid and other kids can see it. And it like releases this insecurity. So you did an intentional match of kids and their specific behaviors Mm -hmm. with teachers and how they self-reported on ACEs. Yeah. Wow. It took a lot. It took a long time. (laughs) I bet it was worth it, but it was so worth it. Okay. So then they get in there. So do you, you told the teachers? Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then how did that year go? Great. So you know that we have building principles that are probably going to be reaching out to you and talking to you more about this. Yeah, no, you feel free to do it. And to be honest, I haven't done it yet because I've been um, a principal for the past three years during like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So during that time, it was really hard to do it. But I now have been with my kids since they've been in preschool. So I know like... Mm. I would like to, I mean, I know their families. I know the kids and you know, the teachers, I know the teachers, Yeah, I know things that are going on in their life. So I try and, you know, stay away from that without having to do the formality of the paperwork. There will be people listening that will say, I love that idea, but my teachers will never go for it. So what is your best strategy for leaders that are thinking, oh, that would be really great to do. And how do you approach that with teachers? Because I just know that there's going to be people listening saying, oh, that's a great idea, but my teachers would never go for it. Were you thinking that your teachers would not go for it? And then they ended up going for it. So what advice do you have? My biggest piece of advice, and I believe this wholeheartedly, is treat people like humans. I treat them like humans first and teachers second. So my biggest thing for an entire year is to figure out who they are and what makes them happy, what makes them upset, um, things that they're proud of, things that they're not proud of, because they have to really trust you with that information. Like, I'm not going to go fill out that ACES survey with somebody that I just met that's standing in front of me that's going to promise a great school year next year. Mm -hmm. Like, you might not be able to give them that survey the first year. It might not even the second year. But if you get to know your people, you don't need the paperwork to figure out that that's not going to be a good fit. Yeah, that's great advice. Look at you. I'm so proud of you. Who would have thought? <laughs> I would. I I just think that's, I have never heard a principal taking that approach and strategy when it comes to matching teachers with kids, but isn't that really what we should be doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it, that that's the type of personalization. And I know you said it took forever, but 
it probably was super, super worth it. And every year we're going to have kids that struggle. Yep. Every year you're going to have teachers who struggle. It doesn't matter if you're in a high income school district, a low income school district, a private school district, one where there's five kids, like there is something going on with every person in that room, teacher yeah. included, same thing, administrators included. We would be lying if you, if we said, oh, we keep everything personal at home and at the door, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> and if they do tell you that you should not stay there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come work for Kate. <laughs> yeah. Come on, bring it on. I love this. Okay. Well, without further ado, here we go. So today on our show, we have Dr. Marty Lukanich, who is a clinical psychologist. Like we said before, she also has an education background and she also was in education for over 20 years, but has over 35 years of experience in the field of mental health and parent education. She's also a wife, she's married to an attorney, uh, and she is a mom of, get this, six sons. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> boy mom. I couldn't, I know, she is, she is hashtag boy mom. But she, the way that she describes her approach is that she likes to offer practical, easy to understand, dare I say humorous wisdom, insight and encouragement. And I think our listeners, regardless of whether or not you're in education, you're gonna take something away for yourself personally and for yourself professionally. I think that she's mm -hmm. really going to um, impact many of our listeners today. But before we get to Marty, we do have yet again our sparkle sister dr bhavna sharma lewis is here with this week's sparkle spotlight hi everyone this is bhavna sharma lewis with today's sparkle spotlight never forget how far you've come all the times you've pushed on even when you felt you couldn't all the mornings you got out of bed no matter how hard it was all the times you wanted to give up but fought through another day Never forget the strength you've gained along the way. Who is the person that was beside you through it all? Have you ever told them? You should, because they need to know. Cheers to being the best version of you and sparkle on. Kate, this is an exciting interview that we're about ready to have. One of your ideas was that we needed to get someone in education that was also a psychologist, somebody that counsels people, does therapy, but also knows education. So we, we're gonna deliver on this for you today. I'm really excited. We have Marty Lukanich with us today, who is a psychologist, but she also has an education background. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Marty, welcome to Unsupervised Leadership. Thanks, glad to be here. We're thrilled that you're here. And so without further ado, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your experiences. And more importantly, Marty, what is your favorite drink? Oh, well, I just got back from New Orleans and um, my favorite drink is a hurricane, except the, <laughs> the buy one, get one free is not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. We've been there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a little bit about myself. The most valuable education piece for me is that I am the mom of six boys who are now men. Thank you, God, they've all made it to adulthood and um, graduated from college, which was a major endeavor for a few of them. And my background is, honestly, um, my first two were so busy and so active that I thought they were possessed. Mm. And um, so I signed up for uh, 
grad school and um, kind of pursued a doctorate in clinical psych, which didn't go exactly like that. But I really felt overwhelmed by the whole parenting experience. And so started running a lot of groups and found a niche there and then found the need for like a deeper understanding of what was happening with these kids developmentally. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there about what's the right way to parent your kids. So that was that piece. And then when I graduated, I started a program for families of kids birth to three and worked in a school district. And it was a prevention initiative program. Before prevention initiative was a thing, we started with that and then grew into supporting that grant. And then I also have a private practice now, which obviously is abundant in the world of mental health that we live in. Which is exactly why we wanted you to come on today. So you've got experience from the littlest of the littles all the way through adulthood. I really do. And I'm super glad uh, to be talking today because I feel passionate about making the connection between birth and what happens by the time kids get to school and what kind of support we can do to bridge that gap. My practice is currently probably 12-year-olds and up, but I feel really comfortable understanding what's happening uh, with the littles. Kate, take it away. Okay, Marty, let's talk a little bit about the change in mental health for adults and kids post-COVID. That's something we get asked a lot about. Well, a couple of things. From from my private practice perspective, it has become very comfortable for people to admit, uh, come in, call, say they need to talk to a therapist. It's almost fashionable. And then on the other side of it is it's devastating in that we are seeing such a heavier burden of serious mental health issues in average, ordinary kids and adults. Say more about that fashionable piece, because I believe every educator, I I really believe every person, but every educator needs therapy. And I think in the past, it was viewed as a sign of weakness. People really held it, didn't want other people to know. But what I've personally seen in the field since taking the job that I've taken and being able to work with a lot of educators is that we should be supporting the idea of mental health and educators. So um, a couple of things. One, the fashionable piece. I was at my 30-year-old son's wedding and it was the middle of COVID. And so the numbers were low and we were sitting at a table with 30-year-olds and they were smiling and laughing about how fashionable it was to see a psychologist and to be on meds and they were cute and funny and normal and healthy about it and kind of put everything in perspective and said, Hey, everybody who's ever needed to take medicine is getting on medicine now. And it's kind of a good thing. And so there was that piece. And then for the educators in uh, the birth to three world, there is a requirement that we do two hours of reflective supervision per month. And when that first came along, I was a little shocked and put off uh, and asked if I could do it for my staff because uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. Why can't I provide that? 
And I was advised to have my own reflective supervisor. So I had to pay a doctoral level person to be that person for me so that I could be a supervisor of a prevention initiative program. And my director was funny and wanted no part of it and said that she wouldn't talk like that with anyone that she couldn't have a drink with. And it was like, it was fair. So I got all the reflective supervision and it was one of the greatest things that ever happened. The idea of reflective supervision is not counseling, but it holds space so that the person who is being supervised can reflect on what they're thinking and feeling and experiencing so that if they're being like triggered by something that's happening with a family or a person who works for them, you know, one of the parent educators, then we're able to kind of understand that and reflect and respond in like a thoughtful way instead of reacting. And I will honestly say I already had my degree and it was one of the greatest additions to my clinical skills, having that reflective capacity. Do you see more people post-COVID flat out just reaching out for help and support through? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. It is, Marty, you're right. Fashionable, I think is a good term to say, because even in other podcasts, when we listen to their sponsorships or things that people talk about being in my thirties, always about therapy, always. (laughs) Which now that we're talking about that is ironic. And Kate loves to shove it down my throat that she's in her thirties. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, There's pros and cons, pros and cons to that. Um, There you go. Thirties are a lot of fun and collect as much wisdom as you can, Kate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, she is. And she's having a lot of fun. (laughs) It's good. It's good. Love it. (laughs) Ask about the reflective supervision because When we were doing that, one of my parent educators was married to a teacher and said, everybody should be doing this. We should be offering this to our teachers. Okay. So first of all, why should we be offering that to our teachers? And tell us a little bit more. The teachers are on the front line. They are clinicians for our kiddos and they are getting all the mental health issues. When young people come to me and they want to get a doctorate in clinical psych, I tell them to get a bachelor's in education and work for a few years, be in the classroom, and they will see all the pathology. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that, that like you see everything in the classroom and then go get your doctorate and you'll have a baseline of what's normal and what you can do to work inside of that and be helpful and supportive. So why do they need mental health support? Because you can't have all of that social and emotional stuff coming your way and not have a space to understand, reflect, contemplate what you just saw in your classroom when someone was unkind or someone blanked out and looked like they were dissociating. That's a really good point. My sister's an EI therapist and I used to be a principal of a school with PFA preschool for all. Mm -hmm. And I worked in a low-income district and now in a higher income district. 
but the same thing is prevalent. I wish that we offered not only teachers, but parents of yes. kids, you know, that come into yep. preschool, like this is an issue. We're going to try and support you. But before we try and do, you know, outplacement or things like that, like family therapy, the, and sometimes I think that's taboo to say to people, but I think it would really be helpful. So Kate, I was always available to our parents and they really needed to know me and build trust. And, you know, it was, I was there for 20 years and they knew you can call Dr. Marty or our parent educator could call Dr. Marty and ask. And so that was the avenue, but a lot of parents were still very reluctant. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why these parent educators who were kind of para pros, but like well-supervised and supported really had kind of frontline um, conversations with parents in fabulous ways. I think that parents, I'm a product of um, early intervention as a parent and a mom and being a, a mom for the very first time and entering into early intervention and also being an educator, I felt ridiculous as a parent not understanding the concept of what was happening with my own son, but then I would have these therapists in my home. And because I was an educator, I think that there was maybe some assumptions like, well, she knows what's going on when I really didn't. And then I felt embarrassed acknowledging I didn't know what was going on. And I'll never forget someone saying, what is your son's sensory diet? I didn't know what that meant. So I started talking about food and I'm to this <laughs> I know you laugh at that, Kate and Marty, but to this moment, I felt like um, an imposter mm -hmm. and I felt embarrassed and ashamed that I wasn't more up to speed for my own son. But I think that there's certainly some ego that goes along with that for a lot of our parents. And I think that there are parents who are well-educated, but they're also afraid to ask for help or to ask those questions. So what advice might you have for, maybe we have educators listening, but maybe we just have parents who are listening to this or we have parents or family members. Cause I will also have family members say, I think this is happening with my sister's son and she won't acknowledge it. What is the best Avenue at an early age? Because I might see it, but she refuses to see it. Courtney, first of all, that takes a lot of courage to admit how kind of overwhelmed you were as a very well-educated parent. And you don't have to have a child in the eye to feel that way. There's a new word and I will find it and get it for you. You can put it on your chat next time. But um, it is, it, it means, and it's literally a new word to the English vocabulary about parenting that we have a culture of people who are graduating from college, very capable, very competent, but don't understand how to parent because like we don't have a lot of little kids around. So we don't know what to do and what to expect. We don't understand the developmental timelines. And I mean, I've, I've been with kids for 40 years and I still consider myself a novice at understanding developmental timelines. And like, I know it when I see it. And so for our parents who are wildly competent, 
in their arena. And then they get this little bugaboo who's like not sleeping and not doing anything predictable. And the rest of their life has been predictable. It makes perfect sense for those parents to have people to support them. Now, the plug here is other states, Missouri, Michigan, they have education from birth. And Illinois has really done a great job of promoting education from birth. But I have a niece that had a child with Angelman syndrome, and she said it was life-saving to have had a parent educator who just walked that walk with her. And um, so, uh, you know, our parents can totally, um, we all need it. It, you know, it's not just low income. It's not one thing. It's not early intervention. Um, we will feel more competent as parents, as our kids get older, if we feel like we have our feet on the ground when they're young. The, the, other, the other two cents I'll add, I'm kind of maybe jumping ahead, but I have seen a movement towards adding social and emotional learning for, for sure, birth to three, but three to five and kindergarten and beyond. And what I tell parents when they're like 12 or 14 year old come to see me is I think that these new kiddos are getting social and emotional learning in preschool and kindergarten and on up. And I think the gap in some of the mental health concerns are the young people who didn't get that, the people who are between 12 and 30. That's a really interesting part point, Marty, like that you basically went into our next question right now in education, people are, and I hate to say like an SEL movement, but I feel like over the past five yep. years, especially with the pandemic, it's like, mm -hmm. how are we incorporating mental wellness into school? What does that look like? Um, some people get that confused with a curriculum, like, oh, well, we, <laughs> we purchased this social emotional curriculum. And we do it 20 minutes a day. We're SEL aware, which educators, depending on who you ask, go back and forth about how ironic that is and how it doesn't work. So are there any tips or points or things that you think are valuable that people can? Well, um, a couple of things. One, I'm at least glad that we're doing the SEL curriculum mm -hmm. because uh, that's a start and that scratches the surface. And then I think, you know, if we're introducing the curriculum, it would make sense. And, and I'm using the, I'm using, like I used parents as teachers for our birth to three program. And we use that as our curriculum. But then like I was constantly doing social and emotional learning and for the littles, but for the parents, mm -hmm. um, identification of postpartum depression. So I think if we have a curriculum for SEL, it would make sense that then we had someone supporting that curriculum and supporting that learning for the teachers and in the, the like heart of social and emotional learning. Um, and I think this is what you were trying to get at is like, what can we help our teachers help our kids with? Number one, like the golden pathway to self-regulation is breathing. And if we can regularly help teachers practice breathing exercises and genuinely have that experience of 
calming themselves with breath work, they will believe in it to a point to be able to help their students. Now, I'm going to say when my reflective supervisor told me I needed to learn how to breathe, I was going through a particularly anxious period of my life with kids, et cetera. And, um, and I kind of scoffed at her because that's what everyone does when someone tells you, you need to learn how to breathe. And, um, she came back the next time with five pages of places to go in the Chicago area to learn how to breathe. At which time I, again, like silently scoffed and thought, this is crazy. Like we all know how to breathe. And, um, since then, in, you know, life and challenges, um, I did realize that I needed to learn how to breathe to manage my own anxiety. That was, again, another one of those great endeavors that put me in a position to, A, our parent educators came back during COVID and said they were knocking it out of the park. Like their families were calm they were well adjusted. They were able to ask the right questions and get them answered. And they really attributed to the mindfulness and breathing work that we had already been doing pre-COVID. One of the things I think when I, the work that I've had the opportunity to do with educators, I'll anonymously ask, do you strongly disagree or strongly agree that you take care of yourself mentally and emotionally? No matter where I go, there is anywhere from 10% to 30% of people, sometimes more in that room who anonymously say they strongly disagree. They take care of themselves mentally and emotionally. These are educators. These are professionals. So I hear you on this idea of we need to teach educators proper breathing techniques. We will have educators that will scoff at that and say, oh, no, come on. But do you believe that we really have a mental illness crisis in our world right now? And what else do you think that we should be talking to and teaching educators about, whether they be superintendents, principals, social workers, um, people who work on our buses, bus drivers, everybody in that system, because you know education, what are some pieces of advice that you think we should be doing for these people? Well, again, number one, the breathing, like it, mindful based self-regulation and BSR. It, like it starts with breathing and being able to like get that right and have some mantras that we can calm ourselves and kind of feel grounded in the world that we live in. <clears throat> and um, you're absolutely right. Our bus drivers and in that mantra, number one is self-compassion. And so like mindfulness is the ability to like breathe, focus and be kind. And it, it differs from meditation in the kindness piece. The meditation piece doesn't talk about being kind, but if you look up meditations or mindfulness, they'll talk about the loving kindness meditation. And the goal there is to be able to start with statements that are compassionate towards ourselves under any and all circumstances, so that in turn, we are able to be compassionate towards our colleagues towards the kids in our classroom, towards our own children, because we're all in it and we all make mistakes and we all, we all get it right and we all get it wrong. And when we start accepting ourselves on those terms and taking a breath and letting it go and forgiving ourselves when we like miss the mark 
and we lose some of the anxiety and get grounded, but it also makes us like more caring towards the people in our classroom, towards our colleagues. And um, so I'm a huge proponent of loving kindness and self-compassion. What are you reading right now? Hmm. Well, that particular episode that I just gave you was from Pema Chodron in uh, When Things Fall Apart. But she also wrote uh, Welcoming the Unwelcome and Being Comfortable with Uncertainty. What else am I reading? Atomic Habits. Let's see. Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. A lot of Dan Siegel, The Whole Brain Child. And my all-time favorite, which is always out, is the happiness equation. Okay. These are good. We can go to Barnes and Noble. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Marty's smart. Yeah. She's smart cookie. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. I just, uh, I, I dabble where I need what I need. Other questions that I answer enough about what our teachers need. Our teachers need a space where they can safely reflect on what's happening for them in the classroom, out of the classroom, uh, whether, you know, that whole piece of having enough time to take care of themselves. I don't know how they possibly have enough time. They are the front line. They are the therapists for those kids. They are, you know, they are the people that the parents will talk to. They feel safe. And I, I really think our teachers need to be, to hear how important they are, how critical they are to building our society. All right, Marty. So you have six boys of your own. You already shared that, but what do you feel is the biggest piece of advice you can give moms of boys? And what is the most pervasive issue you see in your work with women in leadership? And are you sad you didn't have a girl? Be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with that. You know what? I was, it was a great ride with those little boys. And it would not have been fair to bring a girl into that culture. So um, you think I'm kidding? I no, feel bad. I don't. I feel sorry for our daughter-in-laws. And um, every one of them would have a lot of stories about the adventure. So no, I don't feel sorry about not having a girl. Let's, let's go to the one about advice for moms of boys. Mm-hmm. Fasten your seatbelt. Get ready for the ride. Remember that uh, you will be a mother-in-law. So be kind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So let's see. These would be partially pieces of advice for all parents. And that's, and I think, Courtney, you you used the word ego somewhere when you were talking about having EI therapists in your home. And um, I think as a parent, we need to humble ourselves and give our children permission to grow and live their lives and not feel like what they do is necessarily a reflection on us. Like they get to, they get to put this all together. The greatest advice I had was my college professor. And she said, as a parent, you need to like remove your ego and let your child develop their own. And ego is a sense of self. So it's not, you know, grandiose or anything Freud said. 
I use the word ego as just who that person is. And a child becomes who they are by borrowing the egos of the people in their lives, which is why it's important for us to be present for our kids, but in a kind of Montessori way where we let them take the lead and tell us like what they're excited about and what they love, and then kind of joining with them and paying attention to what they love because our adult attention kind of accelerates their ability to focus. So specific to boys, they're crazy. Like they're physical and they act on things and they, they don't sit back and watch. They learn by doing. And so it, from a typical education perspective, it looks like maybe nothing's happening because they're just fiddling around. And then all of a sudden they come up with the answer. And I think we have to set standards and expectations and um, give them the responsibility of fulfilling that expectation, but giving them the permission to do it in their own way. Okay. I'll take your, I'll, I'll take some of that advice from this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, the, the, one of the examples I'll give is like, you know, you've got a couple, I mean, Boys need to be set free, like play in the backyard, set up a game, not all like technology and video games. And they'll be planning a game and um, three quarters of the time spent is putting the teams together and making sure that they're fair and figuring out the pecking order because boys have a pecking order. That is, think of the value of that process for later in life. They've learned to negotiate and work with each other and determine how that's all going to shake out. And the more they do that, the more skilled they are when they get into the work world and have to do the same skills. So switching from boys to girls, since this is a, a podcast about fun, fabulous, fierce females in your practice right now, what do you see as the most pervasive or important issue with women in leadership right now? I thought you were going to ask about girls and I was going to say cyberbullying, but that's oh. a different topic. There could be some women in leadership that would yeah, say that I too. That. <laughs> I, I'm going to not even think about that. That uh, whole cyberbullying is terrifying. And these kids come in paralyzed and the incidence of suicide for cyberbullying for normal, healthy kids is off the charts. And so that, like I said, I think is a different topic, but uh, the biggest problem for women in leadership is probably that there's not enough females to go around and we're so busy that we can't do all the things that we're capable of doing and fill all of like the ideas and roles that come to us. I know that might not be the answer you were looking for, but um, I think that we really need to encourage any budding talents of women we encounter for them to flourish because there's a dynamic in female intellect. And this is the mom of boys saying this, but um, females have a bigger corpus callosum, which is the part of the brain that connects the left and right side. And so we think in this like crazy dynamic way where we can connect thoughts and feelings with words and ideas. And so 
it's just biological. I mean, there's a whole lot to it, but there's a lot of dynamic thinking that happens with females. And then I think females need to be encouraged and supported. And I'll tell you, the number one thing we need to learn is to support each other and not tear each other down. Yeah, we talk about that a lot and how young girls experience that. Like when's the first time you've ever seen a tragic girl? Yes. Like it's tragic. And they're like, I don't know, maybe when I was six. Yep. What? Yep. I watch my granddaughters. So that's the, okay. So why I'm not worried about having a daughter is because I have seven or eight granddaughters. They're awesome, but it's sad to watch that transition when they start thinking about what other people are thinking about what they're doing. You asked, and I told you that my husband had way better answers on um, how boys, like boy moms and how to parent boys. But one of the things is boys, they get mad and they get over it and, you know, they may fight, but it moves on and girls stay mad and they hold a grudge and it's really not healthy. And that is also biological. I think if we know that females can hold a grudge and stay mad and work with ourselves and the people that we mentor to learn that um, holding a grudge is like taking poison and waiting for the other guy to die, like it's not going to help. I think the more we can support each other as women and like hope for all of us to flourish instead of there's no point in competing. Yeah. There's room for everybody. There really is. There really is. Yes. Marty, this is a podcast about F4 leaders and F4 leader is someone who's fun, fabulous, fierce, and female. Do you have any F4 leaders that you want to shout out on the podcast before we sign off? My two parent educators, Sylvia Mendoza and Maricela Avies. Great human beings. Great just great encounters with families. Marty, if we have people reach out to us and want your contact information, do you want us to um, tell them to buzz off or do you want us to give it to them? (laughs) Yeah. How Um, available do you want to be? (laughs) Oh, you're funny. You are funny. You can find me on psychology today in LaGrange or Hinsdale. You can put my email address out there. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Advice. We love it so much and uh, we're gonna have Kate sign us off this episode yeah Yeah. so all of our listeners you were in luck today we got some great responses from Marty she said you guys can bother her so it's okay we're gonna share information (laughs) soon but always remember if you don't have a seat at the table you can always sit with us until next Saturday